see family and friends. My name is David and I'm another one of the pastors here at MPC. It's my privilege to serve as one of your pastors and it's a great responsibility and privilege to open God's word with you this morning. Last week, James preached from Luke chapter 10. We're going to be there again, but instead of going forwards, we're going to go backwards. So we're going to look at the Good Samaritan this morning, a famous parable that many of you will know. And I think there will be a lot there for us. It should be a lot of fun. Before we dive in, though, let's read God's Word. We'll begin in uh, chapter 10, verse 25. If you need a pew Bible, you can grab it on the rack in front of you. And we've made it easy. Just turn to page 869, and you can follow along. This is God's Word. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put Jesus to the test, saying, Teacher, What shall I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, What is written in the law, how do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But he Desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, He passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him. And whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that we might encounter you like this religious lawyer did so many thousands of years ago. Father, would we feel the weight of your words? Would you wreck our lives in a glorious way through this, your word, in this parable? Father, we ask you to do this even now as we worship our way through this text. In Jesus' name, amen. So what is a Christian? How would you say someone gets eternal life? Well, that's the question that this man asked Jesus in the text. Some of you might be tempted to say, well, you need to be good. You need to extend compassion to others. How would you answer that question? How would Jesus answer that question? We don't have to guess because we have Jesus' words here So we want to take some time and to explore how Jesus would answer that question. We're going to do this old school. 
We're going to work our way through the text. We're going to begin in verse 25, go through 28, look at the setting. Then we're going to look at verses 29 through 36. We're going to look at the story or the parable that Jesus told. And then we're going to spend the last bit of our time on one verse, verse 37, considering our response. So first, let's look at the setting. There's two characters. There's Jesus and the religious lawyer. Now, lawyer is not how we think about lawyer in this text. It's not referring to a civil lawyer. He's referring to basically an Old Testament lawyer, someone who was an expert in the Old Testament law, maybe like a seminary professor or an Old Testament seminary professor. No offense, Dr. Fulalove. But this religious lawyer comes up to Jesus and he asks him a question. He says, teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, on the surface, it sounds like a good question. But Luke tells us it was not a sincere or genuine question. He was coming to test Jesus. You see, he'd heard about this Jesus fellow. He'd been hanging out with sinners and tax collectors and prostitutes, and he was showing no respect for the law of God. So I'm going to prove it by asking this question, and then we can be done with this Jesus guy once and for all. It was a trap for Jesus. But not only was it a trap, but his question was really smug. You see, Preachers too many times want to get into the Greek just to impress you. I hope I don't try to do that because I don't know Greek that well. But the commentators tell me that the man's question in the original Greek is an aorist participle, which means his question was really, what have I already done to deserve eternal life? What have I already done? Do you see his smugness and his lack of of humility. And so there's a few rules in life. You don't tug on Superman's cape and you don't test Jesus. So here he comes. All right, Mr. Religious Lawyer, you're the expert. You tell me, what do you think is the answer? And the lawyer answers in verse 27. He says, love God and love people. It was a good answer. Jesus had even summarized the law this way. He may have been the first to actually combine Deuteronomy 6, the Shema, and Leviticus 19. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself. He knew his Old Testament well and he answered correctly. And so Jesus, in verse 28, he looks at this religious lawyer and basically says, All right, smarty pants, do this perfectly. And you will have eternal life. Now is that confusing? Does it sound like Jesus is teaching works righteousness? Like you can do enough to earn salvation? Well think about it for just a moment. Basically Jesus is looking at him and saying, Okay, meet that standard. That's a really big do. Love God perfectly and love your neighbor as yourself. And if you do that, you won't need grace. And you will inherit eternal life. Think about that ethic for a moment. What does it mean to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? It means that God's got to be the first thing you think about and the last thing that you think about. He's got to be the highest 
passion in your life. It means that you're going to love God so much that you are always content because you always have what you most want Him. And if that's not hard enough, He says you've got to love other people like that. Now, I'm really good at loving myself. It's one of my spiritual gifts, unfortunately. <laughs> and what Jesus is telling this man, you've got to love other people as much as you love yourself. You've got to rejoice when they're happy as if their happiness was your own. You've got to grieve when they're full of sorrow as if it were your own. You've got to worry about their future as much as you do your own. So simple, Mr. Religious Lawyer. Love God and love others and you will inherit eternal life. What is Jesus doing? He's crushing him. He's judging him by the lawyer's own standard. And it should have exposed his emptiness and his inability. And in that moment, he should have fallen on his knees before Jesus and said, Woe to me. I am a sinner. Have mercy on me. But what does he do? He doubles down. He tries to save some face. So he asks Jesus a follow-up question. So Jesus, who is my neighbor? He tries to lower the standard. He tries to narrow the focus. He basically, when his guilt is exposed, he tries to get technical. Don't we know that all too well? Who is my neighbor? What is that really mean? You see, I know this religious lawyer very well because I know my own heart really well. And more times than I would like to admit, my heart is like his. My heart is like his and that I'll try to justify myself by comparing myself to others. I'll use the law, you can use race, you can use class, you can use any of those things to compare yourself to other people and to try to justify yourself. And when that doesn't work, you know what we do? We lower the standard, we narrow the focus and say, look, that's just too hard to do. I'm going to be good 80% of the time. And grace is when Jesus makes up the other 20%. I think a lot of us in the church today are actually religious lawyers because the default mode of the human heart is to try to justify ourselves apart from Christ. What does this look like? Let me give you three characteristics of what a religious lawyer might look like. Number one, you might be a religious lawyer if you relate to Jesus as a teacher and not as your Savior. It's okay to relate to him as a teacher, but if you only ever relate to him as a teacher and not a savior, then you're functioning as a religious lawyer. Now that's easy to apply to non-Christians because non-Christians may relate to Jesus. He was a historical figure. He was a really good teacher like Confucius, Mohammed, or, or Buddha. But you see, Jesus claimed to be much more than a great teacher. He claimed to be a savior. It's easy to look at non-Christians, but think about Christians. We have a tendency to relate to Jesus as a teacher more often than we relate to him as a savior. 
That was my story growing up. I knew a lot of Bible. And I would have said that I believed that Jesus died on the cross for my sins and that I was a sinner. But practically, how I was living my life, I was only relating to Jesus as a teacher and a judge. Basically, I obey, I uphold my end of the bargain, bargain, and therefore, you, God, you owe me blessing. That was crushing. There's no joy in that. If you only relate to Jesus as a teacher, do you know what it's like to read the Sermon on the Mount? I don't get inspired reading the Sermon on the Mount. I get crushed. (laughs) Who can do that? You might be a religious lawyer if you only relate to Jesus as a teacher. Second characteristic of religious lawyers is that you have a lot of information but not much transformation. It's people who study their Bibles a lot, who dot their I's, cross their T's, who spend their time in theology, which is a good thing, right? All the while, they are terrible friends, abusive fathers, and provoking husbands. You see, too many of us have a lot of information, but we lack activation. Most of us are educated beyond our obedience. When I was a church planner in Birmingham, I had a new family come to the church and the husband wanted to meet and talk theology, which was fine. But after two, three, four conversations, all he ever wanted to do was talk about the end times, about eschatology. And it's okay to talk about that. But never wanted to talk about anything else. And he knew everything there was to know about the millennium. But it turns out, his wife came to me. This man's life was a mess. His marriage was wrecked. He was living a life full of addictions. He was an abusive father and a horrible husband. He had a lot of theology, a lot of information, but no transformation. You might be a religious lawyer if you have a lot of information and very little transformation. Third characteristic of religious lawyers is this. You have a lot of compassion but for only certain people. Your compassion is present, but it's limited. It's very easy to like people like you or to like people who like you. That's easy to show compassion to people like that. But do you know what's underneath limited compassion is actually superiority. It's a subtle disposition of superiority at the core It's pride and it's self-justification. And you look at other people in the world and though you may not say it, you think, that could never happen to me. So I'm not going to help them. That's what religious lawyers look like. And what does Jesus have to say to religious lawyers? He tells a story. He tells a parable. So let's look at that in verses 30 through 36. A man was going down from Jerusalem and he fell among robbers. This was a common road to travel from Jerusalem to Jericho. It was about 17 miles long. It was downhill. There were a lot of rocks and crevices. So there were a lot of places for thieves and robbers to hide. So much so that this particular part of the Jericho road could be known or was known as the path of blood. 
And so what we have is this man who is attacked by thieves and robbers. He's stripped, he's beaten, and he's lying unconscious on the side of the road. And then we meet the Levite and the priest who come along in verse 31 and 32. They both see this man on the side of the road, but they step to the other side and they pass by this man. Now, if we were being charitable in our judgments, we might say, okay, I get it. They're a Levite and a priest. We know that they're not supposed to touch anything that's dead or they'll become ceremonially, ceremonially unclean. So they've been working hard all day long at the temple. They're going home. We don't want to touch this guy who might be dead because we might have to go back to the temple and be purified for seven more days and then that's just going to wreck my schedule. It's way too inconvenient. Or maybe, maybe they were just concerned about their safety. Maybe they thought, you know what, those thieves are still around and it would be too dangerous to stop and help. Or maybe they just thought, this man is almost already dead and it's going to cost too much. It's going to be too great a sacrifice to help this person. Too inconvenient, too dangerous, and too expensive. Now, the religious lawyer hearing this story for the first time probably would have thought that, okay, I'm hearing about the professional uh, ministry people priest, Levite, he probably would have expected that the third person in the story was going to be a lay Jew, just a regular person like him. But surprise, Jesus says in verse 33, but a Samaritan had compassion. Now we don't understand what a punch in the face that would have been to the religious lawyer. But the Samaritans were despised by the Jews. They were half-breed heretics according to them. They had bad theology. They didn't even believe the Old Testament. They only subscribed to the first five books of the Bible. They had a different ethnicity. They were half-Jew and half-Assyrian. And they had improper worship. They didn't come down to the temple to worship. They built their own temple in Samaria. And the Jews hated that so much they went up one time and tore the temple down. They wouldn't even break bread, have a meal with a Samaritan because it was unclean. And one of the prayers they used to repeat regularly was basically, Lord, protect and be with my family. And when you return, don't let the Samaritans be saved. Now that's a prayer of hatred. But the Samaritans, they didn't think any more highly of the Jews. They were known to lay camp outside the Jericho Road and to steal from the Jews going to temple all the time. And then my favorite story that the Samaritans were known to do, that on the eve of the Passover, they would seek to defile the temple, get this, by launching pigs in a catapult into the temple courtyard. Think about that. Watch out, here comes some bacon. He's going to mess up your holy day. It's the original Angry Birds. <laughs> Let me bring this to a modern context. Let me punch you in the face for a minute. If Jesus were telling this story today, he might say there was a certain man along the road. And then along came a Presbyterian pastor. And this man who needed help didn't get it. The Presbyterian pastor saw him, crossed over to the other side of the road, and kept going. And then 
a Presbyterian worship director came along. He saw the man, and then he stepped to the other side of the road. And then, who came along? Not a layperson, but a Muslim imam who saw this person and ministered to them and showed compassion. Pastor, you're not supposed to say that. Jesus said it. That's the smack in the face that we have to see that there was this great divide between Jews and Samaritans. And this is what he wanted the religious lawyer to understand, that it was the Samaritan who showed compassion. He stops. He gives the oil and wine medicine. He puts him on a donkey, and he risks his life, and he walks all the way to the inn. He gives almost two months of expenses for this man to stay in the inn. And then, and then, he says, if there are any more costs, I'll be back to cover his debt. You know what he's doing? You see, this man didn't even have clothes on. He didn't have any money. And when you show up during that time, if you owe a debt, you can't pull out your credit card. You can't claim chapter 11 or chapter 13. If you have a debt, the only way to settle that debt is to sell yourself into slavery. So what the Samaritan is doing is making sure that this guy will not end up as a slave. He says whatever this guy needs, food, shelter, medicine, clothes, I'll pay for it. And then Jesus looks at the religious lawyer. Which of these was a neighbor to the man? And you can just imagine the religious lawyer through gritted teeth says, the one who had mercy. He couldn't even say Samaritan. Let that hit. Now, time out. It's March Madness, so we're taking a time out. All right, I want you to zoom out of this text for a moment, and I want you to look at the whole context of the Gospel of Luke. Think about Luke, okay? The first nine chapters are all about the identity of Christ. If you read the Gospel of Luke in the first nine chapters, Luke wants you to ask, who is this Jesus? And then in chapters 10 through 24, he wants you to consider the mission of Christ. What did he come to do? So Luke chapter 9, right before this text, is a transition in the gospel of Luke. He's transitioning to talking about his mission. What was his mission? Luke 9, 44. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. And then in Luke 9, 51, it says, He set his face to go to Jerusalem. What was waiting for him in Jerusalem? It was the cross. Okay? Think about that context for the Gospel of Luke. Now think about the context of Luke chapter 10. What's the first story in Luke chapter 10? It's the sending out of the 72 when Jesus sends out the missionaries. They go out and do all this great kingdom work. They experience so much fruit of gospel ministry. They come back. They see Jesus. They're high-fiving Him. They're pumped up. This is awesome. The kingdom is coming. And Jesus is like, yeah, this is awesome. But in verse 20, He said, Do not rejoice that the demons are subject 
to you, but rejoice that your name is written in heaven. And then we have the Good Samaritan. And what comes after the Good Samaritan? It's our text from last week. The story of Mary and Martha when Jesus says there's one thing, one necessary thing that you lack. James preached on it, the golden rule. What is it? Don't rejoice more in the work of the kingdom than the love of the king. So in this context of Luke, in this context of Luke chapter 10, think about what Luke wants us to understand first. There's a figure who comes along and helps somebody when no one else will. It's a bruised and a broken person. And he risks his life and he carries him and he sacrifices for him. And he pays his debt, not just the short-term debt, but the long-term debt. And he delivers him from certain death and imminent slavery. Friends, you can't help but to see that the ultimate good Samaritan is Jesus. He binds up the broken and the wounded when no one else will. He heals you when no one else offers aid. He pays the debt for men and women who place their trust in Him and delivers us from sin, death, and slavery. Friends, when we understand that we are the wounded person, and not just the wounded person, not just the half-dead person, but the dead person in our transgressions on the side of the road, when we understand that the one who offers mercy to us is the one that we've rejected, the one that we've despised, when we experience the ultimate love of the ultimate Good Samaritan, then it begins to change our lives. When we're loved by this ultimate Good Samaritan, then we're able to love like the Good Samaritan. When we reflect deeply on the compassion of Christ, we end up looking like Him. And that leads us to our final section, one verse, verse 37, when Jesus says, all right, go and do likewise. What does that mean? It means go extend compassion like compassion has been shown to you. Let me tell you what compassion is. Compassion is seeing people who may not believe what you believe, who may not live like you live, yet you engage their needs with such tangible resources that it astonishes the world. What kind of compassion will astonish the world? We have a brilliant pastor in New York who gave us a threefold answer. Number one, engaging compassion doesn't limit the who. Who are we to extend compassion to? Anyone. The Samaritan crossed an enormous racial barrier. We help those with whom we have little in common, and we even help those who have wronged us. You help those who you barely know. You help those who are on the other side of the political aisle. You help those who have even broken the law. What do you think prison ministry is? You're ministering to the guilty to those who have broken the law. Who are we to engage with compassion? Anybody. You don't have to agree with their ethics or their theology to engage with compassion. Second type of engaging compassion doesn't 
limit the wind. When are you supposed to help? Whenever you see the need. See, the Samaritan could have come along and said, the Jews deserved it. But you see, we're to help the victims of injustice and those who don't deserve it. What do you think mercy is? It's what Proverbs 3.27 says, Do not withhold good from your neighbor when it is in your power to act. If we have the opportunity to act, we have the responsibility to act. The third type of engaging compassion that will astonish the world is this. Engaging compassion doesn't limit how much. However you can help, the Samaritan put himself at great risk, physically and financially, to extend compassion to an enemy. Galatians 6.2 says, Bear one another's burdens. How do you think it feels if someone's carrying a heavy load and you take part of it? You begin to feel the weight of that burden. It's what C.S. Lewis would talk about. He says, get involved to a point where it basically burdens us. There's not a magic number, but get involved until you feel it. You give up something you need to help someone with his or her needs. And when we have engaging compassion that doesn't limit the who, when, or the how much, then it begins to astonish the world. It happened. It happened when Christianity overtook the Roman Empire. Rodney Stark wrote a book, The Rise of Christianity, that says one of the key uh, contributions that enabled Christianity to overtake the Roman Empire was their love for the vulnerable. We have a letter from one of the Roman emperors named Julian. He was so upset that Christianity was growing and paganism was shrinking that he wrote a letter to one of his friends and he basically said, the religion of the Greeks is not prospering. Why do we not observe the charity of the Christians? They are advancing their cause by their care of the strangers. It's disgraceful that these Christians don't just support their own but they're taking care of our poor. Their generosity, their compassion is so promiscuous. Basically he's saying, the Greeks try to take care of their Greeks, they're not doing a great job. The Romans try to take care of the Romans, they're not doing a great job. But these blasted Christians, they're taking care of their own and the Roman poor and the Greek poor. That astonished the world. They were fulfilling the prayer of Jesus in John 17 that the world will know who I am by your love for one another, especially in the household of faith and to everyone else in the world. Friends, when we reflect deeply on the compassion of Christ, we will end up looking like Him. So let's go back to that original question. What does it mean to be a Christian? How do we receive eternal life? It doesn't come by being a good person, but it comes by receiving the compassion of the ultimate good Samaritan. And after we receive the compassion and the mercy and the act of grace from the ultimate good Samaritan, then we are overflowing with the grace that we've been extended. Those who have been loved by Christ love even enemies like Jesus did. Those who have experienced 
unmerited mercy are happy to extend unmerited mercy. And those who have been given generous grace live lives of generous grace. Here's how you know the difference between someone who really believes and someone who has been transformed by a supernatural work of grace. Your life will be poured out in compassion and service, especially to the poor, because it's an inevitable result to those who have truly been saved. It may come later, it may come sooner, but it always comes. It doesn't give you life, but it proves you've met Jesus. It's that song we sang, Amazing Love, how can it be that Thou, my God, that Jesus would die for me? Long my imprisoned soul. We're in slavery when we understand that Jesus has set us free. When we taste that grace and that love and His compassion, then we will be able to extend that compassion to others. We will be able to go and do likewise. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, pray that You would wreck us, that we would see our inability that we would see our moral bankruptcy before a holy God who demands absolute perfection. That we would understand that we're not sick and just in need of a little bit of grace, but that we're dead and that we're in need of complete grace. So Father, enable this truth to change and transform us so that we might live like you lived, so that the world might know you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.